Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by Limitless Estates, where Kyle and Lolita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. We're your hosts, Lolita and Kyle. In continuation of our female guests for the first quarter of 2020 and celebrating successful women in the real estate industry, we have very special guest, Kathy Fetke, joining us today. Kathy, thanks so much for being on with us. How are you? I'm great. This is my first evening interview, so (laughs) glad to be here. (laughs) Awesome. Well, there's so much to cover in such little time, and I'm sure our listeners are very excited to hear you on our show. So let's get started. Kathy is the CEO and co-founder of Real Estate Network and the host of The Real Wealth Show. Kathy specializes in teaching people how to build multi-million dollar real estate portfolios through creative finance and planning. She is passionate about researching and sharing the most important information about real estate, market styles, and the economy. Listeners, Kathy is truly an expert at what she does, so do take notes. All right, well, let's start by you telling the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do, Kathy. Sure. I am the co-CEO of Real Wealth Network. We have over 50,000 members now. That was our goal uh, to get to by 2020, so we achieved it early, and we help people... Uh, get started as real estate investors. We answer a lot of questions because it's really confusing at first, but we also offer a lot of high-level investor information to experienced people. Um, every This industry never, uh, you could never know everything. <laughs> There's always more to learn, whether it's how to invest your IRA in real estate or how to get amazing new tax benefits. Um, there's always new things to learn. So we, uh, Real Wealth Network, we um, are constantly helping people learn the most cutting edge techniques to, to uh, build wealth in real estate. Perfect. So yeah. your story of how you got started in real estate is really inspiring to me. And I listened to both your podcasts, so I know your whole story, but could you tell our listeners um, a little bit about how you ended up getting started and what kind of pushed you into real estate? It was really pretty much by accident. It was a personal endeavor to understand money, which is something I really never understood. I was always someone who just wanted to take jobs that I enjoyed. Uh, So I worked in the news for many years, but as a news reporter, didn't make a whole lot of money there. I worked as an actor. I was a really terrible actress, so I never made any money in that. Um, and And I was a personal coach for many years, but I never understood how to invest or how to you know, be a business owner. So it was uh, in 2003 that my husband was really doing great in his field. He wrote a book called Extreme Success. He was an international business coach. And, um, but he got some really bad news from the doctor that he was basically told he had six months to live. Fortunately, the doctor was wrong. He had melanoma. The doctor th- thought it spread, but it didn't. So he's healthy today. They cut it out and, and they were able to, um, you know, he, he's better today. So I had to figure out how to 
take care of my family if the doctor was right. So I just made it a mission to understand it. And I, I had a radio show in San Francisco at the time because I was in broadcasting. And I just made it, like I said, I made it my mission to interview people who were successful and who did understand how to create passive income. And it was through that I, I learned and also had my listeners learn. And uh, we still have that show today, The Real Wealth Show. And through that, I also created Real Wealth Network, which is a, a place for people to continue their education and also find really great real estate investment uh, deals. Awesome. So since we're celebrating women in the first quarter, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm assuming it was probably much more difficult back when you got started in the early 2000s for women to break into real estate. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you handled that adversity? Sure. Real estate investing per se didn't at the time have a lot of women or there were women, they were just kind of more in the background. So I, I think now I'm realizing Maybe it was that women were more uncomfortable being in front of a room and speaking, but so many businesses were husband and wife run businesses. But at the, uh, at the real estate investor groups, it was all men. And since I had a radio show at the time, this was again, 2003 to 2004, I started to get invited to speak at these real estate events and there were not women in the audience or on stage, hardly ever on stage. And I always thought that was kind of strange because at the same time, so many ways to invest in real estate. You can do commercial, you can do notes, tax liens, residential, retail, whatever. I mean, there's so many different ways to get involved. I particularly liked residential and that's basically providing a home. And that's something that's really natural for women, right? You know, we know how to provide a home. And, um, and so I could walk into a house and say, this looks like something that a family would want to live in. And there's a kind of that old saying that it's really the woman who decides <laughs> where, you know, where the family's going to live. And, uh, and so I, I just thought, well, as a woman, I can come into this house and say, is this where I'd want to raise my family? And if I had concerns about it, then maybe it would be difficult to rent out. So it just really seemed very intuitive. And I didn't understand why there weren't more women in the industry. But that's really changed just in the last couple of years. I'm seeing rooms that are full of young, young women. I'm really happy to say that that change has happened and it seems to be more and more every day. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So yeah. how important would you say a person's why or reason plays into their ultimate success? Uh, I mean, it, it has everything to do with it. it. Even if you don't know it, it's, it's acting subconsciously. So it's really important to identify your why and identify what's running you. Because a lot of people will say, will say a why, like their why is their family, their loved ones, their spouse, whatever it is, their children. But when you really look at how you spend your time, oftentimes it's the opposite. And so that's a really important thing to identify what, what is not only my why, but where am I spending the bulk of my time? And oftentimes they lose the why uh, because of something else that's driving them that's more unconscious. Mm -hmm. I, I see it all the time where uh, somebody will say, well, I'm doing this for my family. I'm working overtime for my family. I'm traveling for my family. But the family is like, you know, we don't want all these things. <laughs> we just want you. Um, so that's a balancing act. I, I hear a lot of times people saying, well, I want a thousand doors or I want 10,000 doors. Well, is that really what you want? You just want a bunch of doors? Or do you really want freedom to spend time with the people you love and do the things you want to do. Uh, but it's easy to lose sight of that. 
So I have a friend who wrote a book uh, all about that topic. And he said, list the things that are your priorities. And, and when you list it, you know, it's usually the same thing for most people. It's uh, oftentimes a spiritual relationship. Maybe, maybe your number one is God, you know, whatever it is, you write down what's most important to you. And then you say, well, where are you spending the bulk of your time? And it's usually on the number 10 item. So, you know, putting that all in perspective is really important. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So what do you think has ultimately be, been the key to your success? I mean, year over year, you know, even your podcast and your company are in the Inc. 500. I, I follow that. And I know you guys are consistently getting better. What's been the key to that consistent success? Mm. Um, my husband joined the company in about 2008, and then he became my co-CEO about three years ago or yeah, three or four years ago. Um, I think together, uh, just being able to focus again on what matters most and what we decided is constant improvement, just constantly getting better, whatever that, whatever that looks like, whether it means serving your employees better and just being able to look at yourself and be honest and I learned this from him back when I was an actress. Not like I said, I was really not good. <laughs> I was a terrible actress. But he, he would say, why don't you watch yourself and you know, just watch yourself acting and then you can improve on it. And I was like, I don't want to do that. It makes me sick to look at myself <laughs> acting. I, but he, would, he wanted to be a great speaker. So he would record himself speaking and he would watch it over and over again and improve. Now, that's just a kind of a small example of what it takes to, to be able to look at yourself and honestly, you know, not be disgusted or offended or whatever, but just be able to go, oh, okay, there's something I need to work on. Too often, people just don't want to know. They don't want that feedback. Their egos are maybe too big to, to be able to handle that. But if you could just every day just get a little bit better, what's that going to take? Be open-minded to the feedback, not take it personally, and just keep marching along and getting better. That's what we do as a company. We're always looking at our strengths, our weaknesses, our opportunities, our threats. That's the SWOT analysis. We just did it last week at our company retreat. Just giving ourselves an honest assessment and then working on the things that will bring us up a notch. Yeah, man. I, I mean, if you can get better at one thing every day, yeah. you're going to be a superstar, right? I mean, there's, yeah. there's no one that gets better at everything or one thing every day. I mean, it's 365 things that you're going to get better on in a yeah. year. And so, yeah, it really is smoking out, focusing on the small things yes. um, that are the biggest difference. So, mm -hmm. okay. So switching gears a little bit, you focus on some pretty big developments in, in the U.S. and out of the U.S. So mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about why you focus on that asset class and what's really exciting about that to you? Well, like I said, in a different way, you can participate in real estate, whether you're flipping homes or you're doing buying a hole or in apartments. I really connected with the idea of single family homes. It's, it seems kind of boring, maybe not as exciting as other things, but it just made sense to me. I understood it. It seemed like something that's easy to get into, easy to get out of. Uh, people want, people generally want the American dream, which is a single family home. It's not necessarily living in an apartment, you know, or in a mobile home park or whatever. So I just thought, I can relate to this. I always wanted to own a home. I always wanted to live in a home. I want to be able to provide that for tenants. Um, so that's just the direction I went into single family rentals. Since then, I've helped thousands of people build a single family rental portfolio. And then in 2010, a developer was listening to my show and, 
And uh, he just gave a call and said, hey, I'm able to pick up foreclosed subdivisions. Do you think you can raise money? Um, I'm like, I, I don't know. I've never done that. I was just helping people build single family rental portfolios. But it was similar enough, right? It was foreclosed subdivisions of single family homes. So I sent out an email to our list. At the time, it was maybe 10,000 people and just said, hey, you know, anybody interested in picking up some subdivisions? And I had a massive response. Now, I've since learned that there are very, not since, I mean, right away I learned that there are very specific ways to raise money and sending mm -hmm. out an email is not one. <laughs> You've got to have an, a private placement memorandum and an operating agreement. And there's a whole process for raising money that I didn't know my first time around. Fortunately, our first project went amazingly well. People made over 20% and, and uh, it worked out. But as soon as I sent that email out saying, hey, we got this project, but you know, you, you're not supposed to do it that way. So <laughs> I called an attorney and we set it up right. Um, but that's, that was just my niche. It just, it's something I understood. It was easy. I love, I, I love designing homes and, um, you know, building communities. It just it makes sense to me. So I've been doing it ever since that developer. And then I made connections with more developers because when you do one project, you usually attract others. And now we're building subdivisions in Park City and Reno and Tampa. And um, now let's see, Bozeman, Montana, and, um, and in Costa Rica. What's the largest subdivision or uh, development that you've done? Definitely the Tampa one. We, back in 2010, I believe it was, uh, a, a developer who was partners with the, the one, the first one I started working with, he was able to get for $16 million that had been in escrow for $160 million just a few years before. But when Florida went down in the foreclosure crisis, it went down hard and land was so cheap and nobody wanted it. So we were able to raise most of the money and then we brought in an equity partner with a big, big institutional fund in New York. And now that subdivision is called the Murata. It's going to, we re-entitled the golf course into a lagoon, a crystal lagoon. So uh, people can paddleboard right outside their house. And uh, it's just really a wonderful project. So that's definitely the biggest. It's definitely delayed because the bigger the project and the more partners you have, and it, it just takes longer, but it, it's going to be incredible. That's awesome. It sounds beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So oh my gosh. Yeah. So you have basically two different types of investors, in my opinion, and tell me if I'm wrong, but really ones that invest in developments, which can be a little more risky, but probably a little bit more upside. And then other mm -hmm. ones that uh, invest in single family homes. So what's mm -hmm. the biggest difference between those two investors? I think you just nailed it. I mean, single family homes or any kind of cash flowing rental property is more dependable, I guess you could say. It's more if you're renting a home, you can pretty much predict what you're going to get from that property, at least in the in cash flow. Now, if you're going to fix it up or you're going to sell it, you never know. You never know what the market's going to be like. Getting a rental property that has a history in an area that has jobs and population, it's just pretty predictable. Building homes, super not predictable. So there's definitely more risk. Like you said, incredible upside. Uh, one of the deals that we did in, in uh, Dublin, California, we bought a... Um, uh, office building and re-entitled re it for uh, single family home subdivision, sold the lots and 
we thought we would get $14 million for the lots. We ended up getting 20 million. So there was, it was an incredible project, really, really lucrative. But we've had others that didn't go as well and they've been difficult and they're delayed and, and uh, the whole, you know, building codes change and, and regulations change. And uh, right now we don't have the Chinese investors that we, that we had. I think Chinese investments down, oh, I forget the number, but it's, it's substantially. So that affects buyers for higher end projects. Definitely more speculative if you come in as an equity partner on a residential development. How so do it's, you, two, it's two kinds of investors for sure. Right. How do you um, mitigate some of that risk for the developments? We mitigate it by not getting um, institutional financing. We don't get bank loans on construction. And that's really hard to pull off a project without financing because you don't have the leverage there. I mean, I, I love leverage, especially on rental property. The problem is when you're a developer, all you have is dirt. So you can't cash flow that, generally speaking. So if a project gets delayed and you have a bank loan, you know, you could run out of money. That's how we picked up so many projects is people who got financing on their development projects, ran out of money, got foreclosed on, and then we pick up the deal for pretty cheap. So we don't want to be in that position. So we don't, we, we try not to get any projects with bank loans. I've, I've, I have, and you know, we've got our Park City one that's going fine. So that's one way we mitigate it. We'll buy the land. Um, we'll raise enough money to buy the land and get the first phase of homes built. And then we use the profits from that first phase to build the second phase and so forth and avoid getting that construction loan. Um, and then, uh, Another way that we've done it is we've bought the land, improved it, and then sold lots uh, or like sold half the land so that the remaining lots we own free and clear and that mitigates a lot of the risk. Got it. And how long do these developments take from start to finish? And I'm sure the size and, and scope play a role, but are these usually 12 to 18 months or some of them four or five years? It's generally four or five years. The Tampa one is definitely going on seven years now. So the bigger ones take longer. The, we've, we've been in and out in 18 months on some, but generally three to five years. Okay. So my last question for the night is, uh, and I know you talk a lot about the economy, and I would love your opinion of where you see multifamily real estate um, as a whole performing in the next downturn. It just depends. I mean, a lot of times multifamily is done just fine in a downturn. It just depends. In the last downturn, I know people who got hammered with their multifamily. And I know other people who just rode white right through the recession. So it's a little bit hard to predict. What I do know about multifamily is it's bigger. You have more to deal with. You've got, so if you have vacancies in a downturn, if you see rents decline, it's really harder to hold onto a multifamily than a single family. I mean, it, it's, it's hard no matter what if you're in an area that has uh, job losses or is really hit hard by the recession, like Florida and Arizona and California were back then. But we helped a bunch of people, thousands of people actually, time things really well in the last downturn by selling their underperforming properties in sort of bubble markets like California. Uh, we helped people sell all that stuff in 2006 and exchange those properties for properties in Texas that was just at the beginning of its boom. So, you know, th that, that worked out amazing. The, the 
properties they sold ended up crashing and properties that we bought in Texas just increased in value because that area just began to take off during the recession, which is amazing. Um, so multi I know that a lot of people, even in Dallas, even when we were doing really well in Dallas in certain suburbs, I know other people who had multifamily who just really had a hard time because they were not in the best part of town. They were in C-class properties. So it's, it's just important to keep in mind that depending on how deep and dark the recession could be, a lot of people today are telling themselves that, well, if I buy C-class property, it's cheap, it's affordable. If there's a recession, that's where people will go. Well, that's not always the case. Uh, it, what we've seen in the past is if, if things, if there's a lot of job losses like there were in 2008, um, people usually can't afford A-class property. Well, then that kind of drives B-class rents down and then C-class as well. And you kind of, people who are in C-class apartments might be able to move into B-class. So the most important thing I look at is just be in an area that can withstand a recession. Now, what kind of area would that be? It would most likely be an area that's really close to good jobs, a diversification of jobs, good schools, low crime, um, that, you know, basically the place you'd want to live. What would that look like? So you just got to be careful about certain areas that in a downturn could become worse because they can. You know, we, we saw Detroit, look at Detroit as an example, perfectly fine neighborhoods turned, they, they had like doubled their crime during the recession and areas that were okay were suddenly not okay. So the bottom line is I like B class because it seems to be more recession proof than, than maybe the A and the C. But that's a real generalization. It's yep, super absolutely. generalization. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. All right, Lolita's going to take us into our final five questions. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. What advice would you give to women out there looking to get started in real estate investing? First and foremost, get educated. I would say whatever the asset classes you're interested in, let's say you're interested in multifamily, read three books on multifamily from people who have done it and done it successfully. Um, you know, so often people will sign up for expensive boot camps, and that's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with getting educated. But you can get so much information and education today for free or for cheap. Books are 20 bucks. My book's 20 bucks on Amazon. Um, it will give you a real overview of um, owning single family homes. It's called Retire Rich, Rich with Rentals. You've got just so many books to read. Read three of them. Um, about whatever asset class you're trying to pursue and, and see from there if that's something that really resonates with you. Yep. Great advice. What is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you cannot do without? Ooh, the one tool in real estate, I would say it's really leaning on my network of experts. I, when I started real estate investing, I, I just didn't have a lot of experience. So I had to rely on others who did. So surrounding myself with people who are doing what I want to do, that they have more experience with me and, um, and, and having regular calls with them, having them look at deals with me. So really having that team. Yeah, it really is a team effort. Mm -hmm. um, maybe besides that email blast that went to your potential investors on one of your first deals, <laughs> can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing and the main takeaway for our listeners? I did that first deal in Portland with that email that went out. And, and even, even though I did the, the raise wrong, but we fixed it halfway through, I, 
I, I just, I partnered with an incredibly sophisticated and experienced developer. The deal was one where we, we, we basically got uh, the whole thing for, uh, we, we got such a good deal on, a, on the subdivision. I found another one that was similar as far as the, the subdivision had been foreclosed on, it was 70% complete. It was very, very similar, but the operator didn't have the experience. It didn't, he didn't have the same experience as, as, as the developer on the first project. So it took longer. We ran into all these problems. And, uh, and what I learned from that is only work with people who really have a proven, a proven track record in exactly what it is that you're trying to do. Yep, great advice. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? Oh, such a good question. Um, I am actually right now looking for a director of our syndications because our current director is going to go live her bucket list and travel for the next three to six months. So, wow. uh, so we're really looking for that syndication director who wants to take our projects to the next level. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And finally, Kathy, where can people find out more about you? At realwealthnetwork.com. We have so much information there that will really help people get started. And um, we have investment counselors and we, we help people um, network with property providers nationwide. So realwealthnetwork.com. Perfect. Well, listeners, if you don't already, make sure you tune into Kathy's podcast, The Real Wealth Show, for all the latest news and trends going on in real estate. And that's our show. And Kathy, thanks so much for being on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kathy. <laughs> all right. Take care, you guys. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to limitless-estates.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in again next week for another episode.